greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read is going to be an actual book. It's been a long time since I've read an actual book, but this is an important book um, as a Black American to find out or have a more in-depth understanding of these so-called statistics that say Black people have more this than everyone else. Um, Medical apartheid is a real thing. And this is a documented history of anti-Blackness within the medical system of America. So it's an important read for me and for anyone else who is a Black American or if you love a or some Black Americans. Um, or if you're in the medical field and you're wondering about these numbers, more Black people have a higher rate of diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure or, or whatever else. Those numbers have a meaning behind them and the meaning is heavily tied to history. And Black people don't just not trust medical system, the medical system in America for no reason. It's very good reason. So the title of the book is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present, written by Harriet A. Washington, and it's published on Anchor Books. This is an e-book that I'm reading, and Hollow Moon is a very long book and I know I wanted to be able to listen to it um, in order to grasp the concepts because I'm sure it's going to get in depth for real. So there's part one, the troubling tradition is very long. Part two, the usual subjects. Part three, race, technology, and medicine. And the thing about books, listening to them, you don't get the photos So I definitely recommend going to get it. Um, It's available at a lot of libraries. I borrowed this one from my local library. And let's get into it. began working at the Institute, I recalled my adolescent dream of becoming a medical research worker. Daily I saw young white boys and girls receiving instruction in chemistry and medicine that the average black boy or girl could never receive. When I was alone, I wandered and poked my fingers into strange chemicals, watched intricate machines trace red and black lines upon ruled paper. At times I paused and stared at the walls of the rooms, at the floors, at the wide desks at which the white doctors sat, and I realized, with a feeling that I could never quite get used to, that I was looking at the world of another race. Richard Wright, 1944. The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, 
and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Chief United States Prosecutor Robert Jackson opening statement, Nuremberg Doctors' Trial, December 9, 1946. Introduction. The American Janus or Janus of Medicine and Race. Science without conscience is the soul's perdition. Francois Rabelais Pantagru. On a sylvan stretch of New York's patrician Upper Fifth Avenue, just across from the New York Academy of Medicine, a colossus in marble, august inscriptions and a bas-relief caduceus grace a memorial bordering Central Park. These laurels venerate the surgeon, James Marion Sims, M.D., as a selfless benefactor of women. Nor is this the only statuary erected in honor of Dr. Sims. Marble monuments to his skill, benevolence, and humanity guard his native South Carolina's state house, its medical school, the Alabama Capitol grounds, and a French hospital. In the mid-19th century, Dr. Sims dedicated his career to the care and cure of women's disorders and opened the nation's first hospital for women in New York City. He attended French royalty, his Grecian visage-inspired oil portraits, and in 1875, he was elected president of the American Medical Association. Hospitals still bear his name including a West African hospital that utilizes the eponymous gynecological instruments that he first invented for surgeries upon black female slaves in the 1840s. But this benevolent image vies with the detached Marion Sims portrayed in Robert Tom's J. Marion Sims Gynecological Surgeon, an oil representation of an experimental surgery upon his powerless slave Betsy. Sims stands aloof, arms folded, one hand holding a metroscope, the forerunner of the speculum, as he regards the kneeling woman in a coolly evaluative medical gaze. His tie and morning coat contrast with her simple servant's dress, head rag, and bare feet. The painting commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries as one of its a wait the painting commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries as one of its a history of medicine and pictures series takes telling liberties with the historical facts. Tom portrays Betsy as a fully clothed, calm slave woman who kneels complacently on a small table, hand modestly raised to her breast, before a trio of white male physicians. Two other slave women peer around a sheet, apparently hung for modesty's sake, in a childlike display of curiosity. This innocuous tableau could hardly differ more from the gruesome reality in which each surgical scene was a violent struggle between the slaves and physicians. 
and each woman's body was a bloodied battleground. Each naked, unanesthetized, not an easy word to say, each naked, unanesthetized slave woman had to be forcibly restrained by the other physicians through her shrieks of agony as Sims determinately sliced then sutured her genitalia. The other doctors who could the other doctors who could fled when they could hear when they could bear the horrific scenes no longer it then fell to the women to restrain one another i wanted to reproduce tom's painting on the cover of this book or at least in the text but when i asked permission of its copyright holder pfizer incorporated the company insisted on reviewing the entire manuscript of this book before making a decision as an independent scholar I could not acquiesce to this, and I used another cover image. When I renewed my request to use the image with, within the text, Pfizer agreed to base. Mm. When I renewed my request to use the image within the text, Pfizer agreed to base its decision upon reading this chapter and an outline of the book. The Pfizer executives apparently were uncomfortable with what they read because they refused to grant permission to reproduce this telling image or even respond to my query after I supplied the requested chapter and outline. This act of censorship exemplifies the barriers some choose to erect in order to veil the history of unconscionable medical research with Blacks. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history. But as one reads Sims' biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerged. Let me do that again. As you can hear, um, this is not an easy read. And I'm reading it in real time for you. So, if you pardon my pauses, I will continue. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history, but as one reads Sims' biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerges. A man who bought black women slaves and addicted them to morphine in order to perform Dozens of exquisitely painful, distressingly intimate vaginal surgeries. Not until he had experimented with his surgeries on Betsy and her fellow slaves for years did Sims essay to cure white women. Was Sims a savior or a sadist? It depends, I suppose, on the color of the women you ask. Marion Sims epitomizes the two faces 
one benign, one malevolent of American medical research. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke these words in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery Montgomery March that had been attended by the black and white physicians of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. King had invited the doctors not only to give medical succor to injured marchers, but also to witness the abuse suffered at the hands of segregationists. With these almost unnoticed words, King ushered in a new civil, a new era in civil rights because as delegate to Congress Donna Christian Christensen, MD, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust has declared, health disparities are the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Thus, Dr. King's alarm over racial health injustice was prescient, and and were he alive today, his concern would be redoubled. Mounting evidence of the racial health divide confronts us everywhere we look. From doubled black infant death rates to African-American life expectancies that fall years behind whites. Infant mortality of African-Americans is twice that of whites. And black babies born in more racially segregated cities have higher rates of mortality. The life expectancy of African-Americans is as much as six years less than that of whites. Old measures of health not only have failed to improve significantly, but have stayed the same. Some have even worsened. Mainstream newspapers and magazines often report disease in an ethnocentric manner that shrouds its true cost among African Americans. For example, despite the heavy emphasis on genetic ailments among Blacks, fewer than 0.5% of Black deaths that's less than one death in 200, can be attributed to hereditary disorders such as sickle cell anemia. A closer look at the troubling numbers reveals that Blacks are dying not of exotic, incurable, poorly understood illnesses, nor of genetic diseases that target only them, but rather from common ailments that are more often prevented and treated among whites than among blacks. Three times as many African Americans were diagnosed with diabetes in 1993 as in 1963. Wow. This rate is nearly twice that of white Americans and is sorely underestimated. The real black diabetes rate is probably double that of whites As with most chronic diseases, African-Americans suffer more complications, including limb loss, blindness, kidney disease, and terminal heart disease. Cancer, the nation's second greatest 
killer is diagnosed later in blacks and carries off proportionately more African Americans than whites. African Americans suffer the nation's highest rate of cancer and cancer deaths. The distortion of African American death rates is illustrated by the common dismissal of black women's breast cancer risks as quote-unquote lower than white women's. This characterization implies that black women are at low risk from breast cancer, but their risk is only slightly lower because the estimated lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is 10 per 100 for white women born in 1980 and 7 per 100 for black women born that year. Moreover, this lower risk of developing breast cancer is overshadowed by blacks' much higher risk of dying from it. 86% of white women with breast cancer are alive five years later. Only 71% of black women survive that long. A black woman is 2.2 times as likely as a white woman to die of breast cancer. Black women have been undergoing mammograms at the same rate as white women, but are more likely to receive poorer quality screening, which may not detect a cancer in time for a cure. A black woman is also more likely to develop her cancer before age 40, too early for recommended mammograms to catch it. And black women are diagnosed at a more advanced stage than either Hispanic or white breast cancer patients. Black breast cancer patients have a worse overall prognosis and a worse prognosis prognosis at each stage. Black men have the nation's highest rate of developing and of dying from prostate and lung cancers. Despite its image as a disease that affects middle-aged white men, heart disease claims 50% more African Americans than whites. And African Americans die from heart attacks at a higher rate than whites. African Americans are more likely to develop serious liver ailments such as hepatitis C, the chief cause of liver transplants. They are also more likely to die from liver disease, not because of any inherent racial susceptibility, but because blacks are less likely to receive aggressive treatment with drugs such as interferon or life-saving liver transplants. Even the legion of newest illnesses, emerging disease such as HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C, kills blacks at much higher rates than whites. AIDS, the scourge of our time, has become a disease of people of color here and abroad. 49% of HIV-infected Americans are African Americans, and 86% of children with AIDS are African American or Hispanic. Blacks are 10 times as likely to develop AIDS as whites. Mental ailments are destroying blacks as well. Black women suffer the highest rates of stress and major depression in the nation, and suicide rates soared 200% among young black men within just 20 years. These are dire statistics. Born of complex interactions among unhealthy environments, social pressures and limitations, lifestyle factors, 
and limited access to healthcare, including very limited access to cutting-edge therapeutic medical research that is meant to help treat or cure a patient with a disorder. But this dearth of therapeutic research is accompanied by a plethora of non-therapeutic research with African Americans, which is meant to investigate medical issues for the benefit of future patients or of medical knowledge. And this brings up brings us to the subject of this book, which documents a peculiar type of injustice in health. The troubled history of medical experimentation with African Americans and the resulting behavioral fallout that causes researchers and African Americans to view each other through jaundiced eyes. In his 1909 preface to The Doctor's Dilemma, George Bernard Shaw scathingly observed, the tragedy of illness at present is that it delivers you helplessly into the hands of a profession which you deeply mistrust. He could have been speaking for contemporary African-Americans because studies and surveys repeatedly confirm that no other group as deeply mistrusts the American medical system, especially medical research. The problem is growing. As the Wall Street Journal observed several years back, It hasn't been a good time for scientists who experiment on people or the people they experiment on. This is a masterpiece of understatement, especially if you consider the recent history of medical research with African Americans. The Office for Protection from Research Risks, OPRR, has been busily investigating abuses at more than 60 research centers, including experimentation-related deaths at premier universities from Columbia to California. Another important subset of human subject abuse has been scientific fraud, wherein scientists from the University of South Carolina to MIT have also been found to have lied through falsified data or fictitious research agendas often in the service of research that abused black Americans. Within recent years, the OPRR has also suspended research at such revered universities as Alabama, Pennsylvania, Duke, Yale, and even Johns Hopkins. Many studies enrolled only or principally African Americans although some included a smattering of Hispanics. Some research studies specifically excluded white subjects according to the terms of their official protocols. The federally required plans that detail how research studies are conducted. However, in other human medical experiments, the recruitment of blacks and the poor is a tacit feature of the study because they recruit subjects from heavily black inner city areas that tend to surround American teaching hospitals. American university research centers have historically been located in inner city areas and accordingly a disproportionate matter of these abuses abuses have involved experiments with African Americans. These subjects were given experimental vaccines known to have unacceptably high lethality. 
were enrolled in experiments without their consent or knowledge, were subjected to surreptitious surgical and medical procedures while unconscious, injected with toxic substances, deliberately monitored rather than treated for deadly ailments, excluded from life-saving treatments, or secretly farmed for sera or tissues that were used to perfect technologies such as infectious disease tests. A few African-American medical institutions have suffered their own run-ins with federal oversight agencies concerned about how they treat their own research subjects. But the considerable concern raised by governmental oversight agencies has been dwarfed by the periodic hue and cry raised in the popular press. The news media seize upon and decry new experimental abuses with regularity. Moreover, it is newspapers, not research oversight organizations, that have been instrumental in unveiling and ending egregious abuses from the Tuskegee syphilis study in the 1970s to the 1996 jailing of poor black mothers who were unwitting research subjects in South Carolina to the 1998 infusion of poor black New York City boys with the cardiotoxic drug fenfluramine. However, newspapers and magazines have given such abuses episodic rather than analytic treatment, expending their outrage and then falling silent until the next wave of research deaths missing consent forms or unwitting subjects steals headlines. Subjects are often identified not as black but using coded references as the quote-unquote urban poor or socioeconomically disadvantaged or inner-city residents. This episodic approach treats the exploitation of black experimental subjects as isolated events so that even while the repeated reports buttress widespread distrust of medical research, these stories fail to discern these stubborn and illuminating patterns characterizing the medical abuse of African Americans. In fact, the news media often fail to perceive unethical experimentation, even as they write about it. Scientists promulgate novel drugs and technologies such as Norplant, use among adolescents, and psychosurgery for rioters, as new therapies that are unnecessarily extreme remedies. But despite the quote-unquote treatments, untried nature, and the vulnerability of their subjects, the news media often swallows such euphemistic labels as breakthrough and new therapy whole. Research is an utterly essential and desirable component of treatment, but its subjects must be aware that they are participating, must be informed, must consent, and must be allowed to weigh the possible risks and benefits. As this book will show, these conditions are only haphazardly met, or not at all, when the subjects are African Americans. A historical vacuum, 
the experimental exploitation of African Americans is not an issue of the last decade or even the past few decades. Dangerous, involuntary, and non-therapeutic experimentation upon African Americans has been practiced widely and documented extensively at least since the 18th century. Attempts to understand the distrust this history generates are confused and distorted because few know its facts beyond a few oft-cited experimental outrages, notably the Tuskegee syphilis study, history of medicine courses, medical museums, and even much medical scholarship leave one unaware of the long, tragic history of medical research with African Americans. There are fine books that address more general issues in the history of African Americans in medicine. These include The History of the Negro in Medicine by Herbert M. Morais, Making a Place for Ourselves by Vanessa Northington Gamble, M.D., and the sweepingly ambitious An American Health Dilemma by Drs. Linda Clayton and Michael Boyd. Other works deal with discrete instances of African-American experimental exploitation, such as James Jones's Bad Blood and Susan M. Reverby's Tuskegee's Truths, The Plutonium Files by Eileen Wilson, meticulously details government radiation experiments in a gripping expose, Bones in the Basement, by Robert Blakely and Judith Harrington documents the archaeological evidence that revealed how the Medical College of Georgia used stolen African-American bodies for physician training. Alan Hornblum's Acres of Skin chronicles experimentation in Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison complex, and the treatment by Martha Stevens does the same with Cincinnati's radiation experiments. Most of the abuses detailed in these books targeted African-Americans. Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts includes research in its examination of the reproductive constraints on African-American women in a historical context, and Charlotte M. Fett's Working Cures and Todd L. Savitt's Medicine and Slavery are seminal histories of antebellum medicine that discuss research issues but not exclusively. A few scholars have devoted books to research with blacks abroad, such as Clarence Lussain's Fine, Hitler's Black Victims, Wolfgang U. Eckhart's Medicine und Kolonialimperialismus on Medical Colonialism in Germany's African Holdings, and Jean-Bart Joal's Herero Heroes on the German Medical Abuse of Namibia's Herero People. But none of the works listed above attempts anything like a comprehensive history of the racial research wars. There have been no inclusive treatments of African-American medical research and only a few books on discrete aspects of that history. Focusing on research in a single prison, a single archaeological discovery of African-American bones in a medical school basement, a single experiment with syphilis, men or a single radiation experiment. Why? History is written by the victors, warned Churchill, and a Nigerian proverb issues a similar caveat. Don't let the lion tell the giraffe story. The history of medicine has been written by medical professionals, and so reflect 
their points of view. The experimental suffering of black Americans has taken many forms. Fear, profound deception, psychological trauma, pain, injection with deadly agents, disfigurement, crippling, chronic illness, undignified display, intractable pain, stolen fertility, and death. None reflect well upon their medical practitioners, so this experimental abuse often has been downplayed or misrepresented as quote-unquote therapy in the medical and popular literature. This book reveals these tendencies as well as the lack of objectivity and sensitivity with which African-American fears are often greeted, and the social and cultural reasons for the lack of common ground. The slave appropriated by physicians for experimental surgeries, the impoverished clinic patient operated upon to devise or demonstrate a surgical technique, the sharecropper whose body is spirited from the morgue for dissection, the young girl whose fertility is stolen via untested contraceptive technique or a Mississippi appendectomy, involuntary sterilization. The soldiers, prisoners, and children who find themselves without options when government physicians foist novel medications and techniques upon those with little legal protection. All these African Americans, and many more, have found themselves voiceless as medical lions have chosen to present this research in a bolderized manner. The oral histories of medical abuse voiced by African Americans are often dismissed as mythological but without objective proof of this label. African Americans' personal stories and familial histories of abuse have rarely surfaced in the medical literature or in the popular literature. This is not surprising because African Americans were not well represented in these canons until fairly recently. Why should we give the physicians' medical narratives more credence than the numerous contentions of slaves, sharecroppers, and contemporary African Americans that they have been subjected to abusive medical research? Until now, the discussion has suffered greatly from our Western literary bias, which encourages us to believe planters and physicians' writings about the health and medical issues of African Americans but to give insufficient weight to a rich oral history passed down by African Americans, a history that has preserved the memory of medical abuses. We quite logically cede medical authority to medical experts, but this book will illustrate how race, culture, and economics have trumped medical and scientific truths at every turn. It will make the case that physicians had every motive to skew narratives against their black subjects, not because they were especially racist or unfair, although many were, but because the culture of American medicine has mirrored the larger culture that encompassed enslavement, segregation, and less dramatic forms of racial inequity. The bias against African-American medical narratives emanates from culture 
and politics, including the Western literary bias against oral history. Because slaves were forbidden to read and segregated educational institutions perpetrated illiteracy and undereducation, Black Americans' contributions to historical understanding of their role in American medicine were dwarfed or silenced. Finally, physicians' accounts carefully inculcated beliefs about Black fearfulness, credulousness, emotional instability, and a tendency toward falsehoods that helped to discount claims of abuse. The resulting lacunae in American medical history feed erroneous assumptions about Blacks' medical wariness. An almost innate resistance to all medical research is ascribed to all African Americans. Often the fear of becoming an abused, unwitting subject is laid to one one signal instance of abuse, the Tuskegee syphilis study, rather than to a centuries-long history of such abuse. Fortunately, the facts recorded by researchers and scientists themselves in medical journals, texts, speeches, and memoirs buttress African-American claims for several reasons. Until three or four decades ago, these researchers were speaking only to their like-minded peers. Other whites, usually male and rarely of the lower classes, They could afford to be frank. Blacks were barred from many medical schools and training programs, and newspaper and magazine reporters rarely read the medical publications perused by specially trained medical men of means. There was very little danger any blacks would read medical accounts because in the antebellum period, black literacy was banned by law, and illiteracy persisted long beyond slavery. Therefore, A doctor could be open about buying slaves for experiments or locating or moving hospitals to areas where blacks furnished bodies for experimentation and dissection. Public health service physician Thomas Murrell could rashly insist in the 1940s, the future of the Negro lies more in the research laboratory than in the schools. When diseased, He should be registered and forced to take treatment before he offers his diseased mind and body on the altar of academic and professional education. Mm. Even more recently, the segregated nature of the United States medical training emboldened some physicians to speak with candor of misusing black subjects. It was cheaper to use niggas than cats because they were everywhere and cheap experimental animals. Neurosurgeon Harry Bailey, M.D., reminisced in a 1960s speech he delivered while at Tulane Medical School. But as societal attitudes changed, so did physician reticence, and most became more circumspect. However, as late as 1995, radiation scientist Clarence Lushbaugh, M.D., explained that he and his partner, Eugene Sanger, MD, chose slum patients as radiation subjects because these persons don't have any money and they're black and they're poorly washed. This book, 
will document numerous instances of such shocking frankness on the part of white researchers and physicians when they thought that nobody outside of their peer group was listening. In the course of explaining what constitutes exploitative experimentation, medical apartheid will explain the meaning and nature of informed consent and the differences between therapeutic and non-therapeutic research. It traces the delicate balance between experimental risk and benefit because symbiosis, not complete freedom from harm, is the, therap- is the therapeutic goal, a goal that often eludes African Americans. The individual chapters also supply general background on how experimental practices evolved over the periods covered in this book and how laws and institutional review boards now protect volunteers, albeit still imperfectly. Finding the truth in plain sight. It is medical researchers themselves who have documented the proof of this long, unhappy history of African Americans as research subjects. Even so, this history has been a challenge to document because it has been hidden in plain sight, widely scattered, distorted, and rendered all but unrecognizable as abuse by heavy editorializing. As I recall the years I have spent ferreting out these experiments bit by bit, examining their patterns and probing the mindsets that they revealed, I am put in mind of the legal discovery process. A favorite ploy is to provide the opposing side with all the information it seeks, buried in towering mountains of unrelated or tangentially related documents. Similarly, I have perused dusty antebellum medical journals, the Surgeon's General's Index, its successor, the Medline database, physicians' memoirs and literary efforts, slave narratives, and painfully picked my way through foreign publications in alien tongues that are sometimes more forthcoming than domestic publications about the history of our medical treatment of minority groups. Mining the bright but thin loads within these resources, I gradually amassed a cachet of evidence. As previously hidden experimental exploits come to light, some have challenged the characterization of such research as quote-unquote secret, noting that the reports were published in medical and scientific journals that could be read by anyone. But these critics would do well to weigh Marcel Pagnol's definition of secrecy. A secret is not something unrevealed, but told privately in a whisper. Until the past few decades, descriptions in medical publications of experimentation with African Americans were shielded from the eyes of the uninitiated. Generalized professional journals, such as the Journal of the American Medical Association and the New England Journal of Medicine, are not available in bookstores or on newsstands. Specialized medical journals are even less accessible, and access was even more restricted in past decades. The medical libraries that house these journals have historically been closed to the public, and most remain so. Indeed, I have been challenged while entering such libraries while a student or instructor at various northern universities. Moreover, physical access to such journals would constitute only the first hurdle. 
The medical jargon in which such research papers are couched is often impenetrable, even to well-educated non-medical people. But some of the people central to medical research have been more generous with, with their knowledge. Scores of researchers, physicians, and research subjects have shared their time and expertise and added depth to my understanding of the cultural divergence that has fed this history. Often they told me more than they realized. For example, a duality has persisted, as I have learned from them more than the facts of scientifically questionable and ethically troubled medical research. Whether we are discussing the etiology of tuberculosis, gynecological surgery, or the implication of census health statistics, these sources have conveyed to me Rorschach-like divergent medical worldviews. The overarching presence of two Americans, one healthy and white, and the other filled with sick, disaffected people of color has haunted our discussions. Scientists who abuse, exploit, and lie to research subjects get more than their share of ink, but I have spent enough time among physician scientists to believe that most American researchers, white and black, are idealistic and skilled. However, when it comes to the abuse of African Americans, a different set of ethical standards has long prevailed and abusive researchers have historically been closer to the norm than we would like to think. Conventional wisdom pins experimental abuse on the Dr. Frankenstein stereotype, a scientific outcast of dubious pedigree who harbors blatant social or mental maladjustment, but historically, most perpetrators of ethically troubling experiments utilizing African Americans have been overachieving adepts with sterling reputations, impressive credentials, and social skills sufficient to secure positions of great responsibility. The stereotype of the abusive researcher as a coolly amoral renegade is a stock figure borrowed by journalism from science fiction. Like all stereotypes, it is one-dimensional and therefore false. Professionally and socially, These rogue stars have much more in common with the top strata of other successful American researchers than they do with mythical madmen. In fact, researchers who exploit African Americans were the norm for much of our nation's history when black patients were commonly regarded as fit subjects for non-consensual, non-therapeutic research. This book explores the many reasons that blacks are so vulnerable But ultimately, it is because American medical researchers remain a racially homogenous group, and I show how the racial homogeneity of American medical researchers lies at the very heart of the problem. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. The curious world of medical research. Ironically, my interest in medical research using African Americans is a direct outgrowth of my long-standing fascination with the more noble history of medicine. In fact, when asked to describe my work, I usually explain that I am a medical voyeur. I am an admirer of medicine, and when not working alongside physicians in hospitals, I have spent decades profiling, describing, and analyzing medical advances and the remarkable people who make them. In my many magazine and newspaper articles and in books that celebrate modern medical innovation, I have tried to convey the achievement, mission, and wonder of healers. My greatest challenge has usually been to avoid descending into frank hagiography. This admiration began at the age of eight when Albert Schweitzer, out of my life and thought, became my favorite book but it crystallized while I was an undergraduate at the University of Rochester. My favorite floor of the undergraduate library housed physicians' memoirs of a medical swashbuckler genre that included such titles as my patients were Zulus and Burma doctor. Those heroic remnants, remnants, how can I get this word? Reminences? Reminisce. Reminiscences. She was reminiscing. Um, of lands populated by African and Asians mingled adventure with medical proselytizing. Proselytizing? And constituted a guilty pleasure for me as I poured over them when I should have been reading the assigned Chaucer or genetics. These readings also constituted a guilty pleasure because although... I originally read them as accounts of selfless physicians who cared for people of color. I soon realized that these accounts reeked of xenophobia. Most were deeply disdainful of the natives on whom physicians bestowed the blessings of Western medicine and Western civilization because these exploits were distant in time as well as geography. I was less critical than I should have been when they sneered at the ignorant customs of superstitious natives. It all happened so long ago, I thought. Surely these colonial attitudes were dead now. I even made excuses for doctors whose disdainful observations were sprinkled with ethnic slurs or when they congratulated themselves for conducting dramatic, not always benign, experiments upon the unwitting. I excused them on the basis that all this had taken place in the unenlightened How could we judge them for abuses conducted under the aegis of yesterday's morals? As the years passed, this became a progressively unsatisfying rationalization, and I eventually abandoned my medical adventures. Some years later, I opened a drawer and lost the remains of my innocence. I was running a modest poison control center in a teaching hospital in upstate New York, and we poured toxicologic 
relations had expanded into a space that had been reluctantly yielded us by radiology, a quote-unquote real medical department. When I opened a recalcitrant drawer of a file cabinet that had been left behind, a few forgotten medical folders from the 1970s littered its bottom. One contained the file of an older gentleman in imminent kidney failure and focused upon documenting the reams of tests and assessments entailed in finding him a matching kidney for transplant. The social history stressed his loving family and determination to live. Another file also described the plight of an older man in kidney failure, but it looked different, thinner. The first page I read documented his odyssey into sickness as his kidneys failed. It noted, among other things, that he was retired, insured, and Negro. Nearly every page recorded his race. And someone had underlined it on his social profile, just above the line that indicated that the medical staff's plans for him were not to secure a transplant, but to help him to prepare for his imminent demise. It was signed by a kind, erudite physician I knew and admired and who had actively encouraged my interest in medicine. I could not reconcile... I'm pausing because I'm thinking of the last two elders who passed in my family and how they, one who worked in the medical field and one who actually spoke of trusting white people so much, but when it came down to it, they knew the medical profession was not going to be their saviors. Back to the man with the file, with the Negro file in the medical office. Mm. It was signed by a kind, erudite physician I knew and admired and who had actively encouraged my interest in medicine. I could not reconcile this signature with the man I knew, a sensitive scholar and devout Christian. Probably, I thought, I was jumping to conclusions and the patient's race had nothing to do with his failure to be considered for a life-saving organ. When I (coughs) haltingly voiced my fears, to an African-American acquaintance who had worked as a ward clerk in the nephrology unit. She looked at me as if I were not too bright and minced no words. Girl, black people don't get organs. They give organs. During our ensuing debate, she pointed out to me that race bias in the hospital where we worked should have resolved any doubts. In the early 1980s, Most of its black employees worked in housekeeping and clerical support. Blacks were noticeably scarce among the administrative and medical staffs. Why, she asked, was I naive enough to believe racial bias stopped at the staffing roster? This was hardly proof, but my discomfort grew as she categorized instance after instance of overt bias and finally declared, I would never have a procedure done here. I've seen too much. To them, if you're black and poor, you're nothing but a guinea pig. I realized that my discomfort with her words went beyond the truth or falsity of her allegations. The mere fact that she believed them was unsettling because she had worked in a hospital setting, was presumably better informed than most, yet 
she did not trust the medical system and seemed less likely to turn to it when ill. The perception of evil in such cases, I realized, can prove as damaging as malfeasance itself. I finally glimpsed that understanding the true extent of unethical medical research with African Americans was more than idle curiosity or an academic or an academic exercise. It was key to removing barriers between African Americans and the bounty of the American healthcare system. In the hospital's medical library, I discovered a new genre of physician confessional literature, one that described black patients, not in Africa, but here in the United States. Unlike the African book-length exploits, these often consisted of a revealing passage or two in an autobiography, a few pages in a memoir, or a hoary article in a 19th century medical journal. I recognized in these Western accounts of Black American patients the very same stereotypes belabored in African accounts. References in American physicians' memoirs and journal articles were studded with telling vignettes and observations of their Black patients. The stories physicians told mixed stereotyped comedy with exasperation as they dismissed blacks as disease-ridden, unintelligent, fearful, distrustful, and above all, non-compliant patients. By non-compliant, doctors meant patients who could not be trusted to follow medical advice or even to act intelligently in their own best medical interests. I realized that such negative presumptions hampered physicians' ability to care for black patients, or even to see them as worthy of the same excellent care rendered to others. For their part, the black patients I met and interviewed shared their own medical lore, which warned against trusting Western medical practices and physicians, a matrix they characterized as racist, rapacious, and eager to exploit black bodies for medical gain at the cost of health. Thus, the disparate narratives of African Americans and physicians tell, unveil a state of undeclared war, or at best, an uneasy truce between physicians and their black patients. But I knew that analyzing the history of African Americans as research subjects would necessitate more than a familiar, would necessitate more than a familiarity with history and contemporary medical literature, a sound understanding of basic, basic medical sciences and medical cultures, regulations, protocols, research design, and procedures would also be necessary. This would require a research plan enabling me to ferret out studies in a wide variety of disciplines and subjects. Finally, I would have to speak to medical researchers, subjects, and patients about sensitive experiences. At that time, around 1980, data on racial health disparities was sparse and anecdotal. And in any event, I felt unqualified to take on such a daunting task. I had some grounding in the basic medical sciences, but having abandoned my pre-medical studies, my knowledge was incomplete. However, I occupied a good vantage point from which to observe and accrue an understanding of medical research culture. I had worked in hospitals for a decade, 
in positions ranging from ward clerk to laboratory technician to department manager and in venues ranging from the animal laboratory to the cancer research laboratories to the psychiatric emergency department to the poison control center. The physicians for whom I worked openly discussed their work with me and were more forthcoming with me as a lowly clerk or technician than they would have been with a journalist. I eventually left the hospital to work as an inner city medical social worker ensconced in settings where I constantly talked to African-American clients and their caregivers about their beliefs and behaviors concerning medical care and research. I then worked as a journalist, most notably as a news editor and science editor at daily metropolitan newspapers for seven years, including a brief stint at USA Today. After that, I worked as a medical journalist, a columnist, a contributing editor for several national magazines. My work was published by the New York Times Syndicate and appeared in popular publications as diverse as Health, USA Today, Essence, and Psychology Today. I was also published in academic publications such as Harvard Public Health Review, Nature, and the American Journal of Public Health, and I edited the Harvard Journal of Minority Public Health and especially valuable experience. A monthly medical column that I wrote for Emerge Magazine gave me experience in framing the issues this book explores for a general audience, and it opened a conduit for numerous first-person testimonies as well. On a parallel track, I obtained a firm scientific background by completing a pre-medical course and medical school courses in immunology, toxicology, and neuroscience. As I took classes with medical and doctoral students and postdocs, they became my best sources by relating contemporary research they had participated in. Often, they confessed to being troubled by ethical concerns, and this validated my anxiety about some disquieting trends in the commercialization of medical care and in what I increasingly perceived as an erosion of informed consent to research. Academic institutions, including Stanford, Maryland, and the Medical University of Lübeck, invited me to share with their scholars what I was learning about the hidden history of experimentation with African Americans. At the same time, I embarked upon a Harvard Medical School Fellowship in Medical Ethics. We addressed thorny issues in the philosophy and policy of medical research and engaged in a wealth of readings, seminars with important experts, but it is my own assessments of these studies, informed by my medical ethics training that form the basis of the ethical analysis in this work. They stand or fall on my own logic and historical knowledge. The scope and structure of medical apartheid. I was determined that medical apartheid not be a simplistic black hats, white hats story in which African Americans are passive victims and researchers are always villains. Instead, the book takes a frank but more nuanced look at the calculus of racism's effects on experimental practice. I have attempted to write a social history that traces the key role that various researchers have played in both promulgating and refuting racism in medicine. It was impossible and undesirable to incorporate every instance of racialized experimental abuse that I unearthed. This would have resulted in a long 
dreary checklist of horrors and little useful insight. The bulk of questionable experimentation upon African Americans is not detailed here because much of it consists of aberrations in therapeutics that were ostensibly meant to cure. Attempts to heal that transgress against ethical rules by dramatically escalating dosages and techniques or that involve non-material breaches of consent are still wrong and risky. But they concern me less because they are sometimes products of honest error and because the intent is still to heal or help. This book focuses more heavily upon experiments with mammoth risks, little or no therapeutic content, or no possible benefit to the subjects, and upon mere attempts at exploitation to perfect medications, procedures, and techniques. Therefore, this book is not a complete chronology of abusive racial racial research. Rather, it is a thematically organized collection of historical and contemporary issues in medical research with African Americans illustrated by important cases. I also broach a discussion of such previously ignored historical themes as the fact that fraud is often a traveling partner of racially abusive research. I also explore the history of using African Americans in experimentation intended to support unflattering racial stereotypes and beliefs. African Americans have been used, for example, to perfect the IQ tests that would prove them inferior in intelligence, to devise the treponemo test that would prove them ridden with a distinctive strain of syphilis, and to perform the painful skin and visceral dissection that would prove that blackness or negritude is a permanent mark of biological inferiority that exists independent of skin color. Some other important medical issues have been excluded from this work because they spill outside the strictest thematic boundaries of African Americans in medical research. Despite the long and rich history of medical abuse in African and other third world countries, much of it conducted by U.S. researchers, there is no chapter detailing such research in this book. In one sense, this is akin to discussing Jewish issues without discussing Israel. But the sweeping history of such research is far too extensive to address in a single chapter, especially because it is burgeoning rather than abating. Mm. Similarly, it is impossible to capture completely the important work of African-American medical researchers in a single chapter. And I have reluctantly deferred a discussion of this neglected subject, both for space reasons and because black researchers have tended to engage in therapeutic research rather than in the troubled investigations that are the subject of this work. Medical Apartheid consists of 15 chapters organized into three parts. Part one, a troubling tradition, takes a chronological approach to the role of African-Americans in early American medicine. It stresses the experimental abuse and exploitation of African-Americans from the first encounters in the New World through the post-Civil War era and then up until the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which began in 1932. Part 2, The Usual Subjects, covers the period from the early 20th century to the present day in a roughly chronological manner. However, it departs from strict chronology in favor of an analysis of specific types of vulnerable subjects, children, soldiers, and hospital patients, 
used in research conducted by institutions ranging from the federal government to private corporations. In part three, race, technology, and medicine examines contemporary research issues, including genetic research, investigations into emerging diseases, and bioterrorism. In the epilogue, Medical Research with Blacks Today, I discuss how the worst abuses have been replaced by more subtle threats to the rights of the individuals to choose whether and when to participate in medical research. And finally, the appendix directs readers to a wealth of guidelines and regulations to help them navigate clinical trials. Research issues still matter. Why do centuries of mutual distrust over medical research matter today? What does the sad history of exploitative experimentation augur for black health? What the French see in wine, Americans see in healthcare, mused Robert J. Blinden, PhD, professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard School of Public Health. Americans consider access to excellent health and even the most expensive means of maintaining it their birthright. Americans enjoy ever-burgeoning longevity, extravagant nutrition, and everyday access to superb superb medical care, including expensive high-technology interventions, from CAT scans on demand to new hips to keep us on the tennis courts and new hearts to keep us in the game We demand the best care, including novel and experimental therapies. Our devotion to the very latest and expensive remedies for increasingly marginal medical gains has many Americans bumping up against the law of diminishing returns. At the same time, medical experts of every persuasion agree that African Americans share the most deplorable health profile in the nation by far, one that resembles that of third world countries. When Dr. Harold Friedman observed that the health status of Harlem men resembles that of Bangladeshis more closely than that of their Manhattan neighbors, he did not exaggerate. Twice as many African-American babies as babies of other ethnic groups die before their first birthday. One and a half times as many African-American adults as white adults die every year. Blacks have dramatically higher rates of nearly every cancer, of AIDS, of heart disease, of diabetes, of liver disease, of infectious diseases, and they even suffer from higher rates of accidental death, homicide, and mental illness. Before they die young in droves from imminently preventable diseases, African Americans also suffer far more devastating but equally preventable disease complications such as blindness, confinement to wheelchairs, and limb loss. Studies continue to demonstrate that Far from sharing in the bounty of American medical technology, African Americans are often bereft of high technology care, even for life-threatening even for life-threatening conditions such as heart disease. 
The much bewailed racial health gap is not a gap, but a chasm, wider and deeper than a mass grave. This gulf has riven our nation so dramatically that it appears as if we were considering the health profiles of people in two different countries, a medical apartheid. Researchers have proffered a cornucopia of theories theories for this medical divide, many of which focus upon putative biological dimorphisms, especially genetic differences. But in dissecting this shameful medical apartheid, an important cause is usually neglected. The history of ethically flawed medical experimentation with African Americans. Such research has played a pivotal role in forging the fear of medicine that helps perpetuate our nation's racial health gulf. Historically, African Americans have been subjected to exploitative. Let me start that again. Historically, African Americans have been subjected to exploitative, abusive, and voluntary experimentation at a rate far higher than other ethnic groups. Than other ethnic groups. Thus, although the heightened African American wariness of medical research and institutions reflects a situational hypervigilance, it is neither a baseless fear of harm nor a fear of imaginary harms. A quote unquote paranoid label is often affixed to blacks who are wary of participating in medical research. However, not only is paranoid a misnomer, but it is also symbolic of a dangerous misunderstanding. That is why I refer to African American fears of medical professionals and institutions as iatrophobia, coined from the Greek word iatros, healer, and phobia, fear. Black iatrophobia is the fear of medicine. Even those who investigate the role of medical ethics and medical policy are trying to dissect and analyze the much-decried African-American aversion to medical research without understanding the history that created that aversion. The historical cause of the racial health gap has been only crudely and cursorily examined and is usually reduced to knee-jerk responses to the Tuskegee syphilis study as if this were the only instance of problematic medical experimentation. But scores of historical events connected with medical research have plagued Black Americans and affected their health-seeking behavior. This historical silence is a grave omission because trying to ameliorate African-American health without understanding the pertinent history of medical care or this is me putting my word medical uncare is like trying to treat a patient without eliciting a thorough medical history a hazardous and probably futile approach kill the messenger in fact Some otherwise well-meaning people wish to censor any analysis of troubled research with African Americans, as I discovered firsthand, to my great surprise. I was elated when a professor at a United States medical school summoned me to her office explaining that she wanted to hear all about the book I was writing. Ensconced in a chair, I eagerly began to describe my work, 
only to be cut off before I had completed the first sentence. Bolting upright in her chair, she vehemently informed me that the topic of this book was taboo. It's a terrible thing that you're doing. You are going to make African Americans afraid of medical research and physicians. You cannot write this book. As she glared at me, her face became contorted with anger, suffused with blood, and her breathing grew rapid. For a moment, I was stunned into silence because nothing had prepared me for her reaction. After all, freedom of speech and academic freedom are sacred in this country. I was also a bit surprised that a white academic whose discussions and syllabus had evinced no interest or expertise in the matter should lecture me. I was also a bit surprised that a white academic whose discussions and syllabus had evinced no interest or expertise in the matter should lecture me. An experienced African-American medical writer about health communication with African-Americans. She proceeded to inform me that there had been no medical research utilizing African-Americans before the Tuskegee syphilis study. (laughs) Oh gosh. She. Mm. Certainly not in the antebellum past. And when I asked her how she knew this, she countered. Can you prove that there was? When I responded simply, yes. She disgorged a clumsy inquisition, unleashing a barrage of questions that showed she knew nothing about the subject at hand. I responded that my work was well-researched and that she had raised an interesting question was it indeed my work that would make African Americans wary of healthcare and medical research? Or had the work of those whose abuses I proposed to chronicle already achieved this? The answer was all too obvious. I knew from years as a medical social worker, a medical journalist, and a researcher that black Americans did not need me or anyone else to inculcate a fear of medicine. Medical history and practices had long since done so. Medical apartheid is my attempt to document, at long last and as fully as possible, how and why this has happened. contemplating whether or not I want to move forward with reading this book. I personally don't um, need any more proof that my hesitation with the um, standard the standard um, system of medical medical care 
the medical system in America. I have my um, hesitations for for good reason. I'm not. I don't feel ashamed of it. I don't care about people who think that I'm being overly cautious or quote unquote paranoid because I'm a black woman and I'm just paranoid and it's not real that they really haven't done what they've done because I I already know yeah they definitely did and still do um it's just it just dives into like murky waters and, and what would that mean for me to like read um the book is is very long and um, just knowing about the things that's still going on right now when it comes to the latest vaccine um, that <laughs> oh 2020 was a year wasn't it um, and how certain jobs now in order to get them you have to have proof proof that you were vaccinated and just alone in the intro Pfizer is one of the people who were like nah we're not gonna um, let you use our information in the book or something she said I don't recall but I, I heard the name Pfizer and I just remember the Pfizer came out with the with the one dose like all of the other ones were more than one dose but Pfizer was like, we can do the windows. Or was it Johnson & Johnson? See, I don't know, because I'm not an expert. I don't trust none of them. I don't trust none of them. Point blank, period. But um, I just noticed on when looking, looking in the, um, at different jobs, um, the application process does include the... Um, you have to prove you're vaccinated. Although, as a country, the United States no longer requires it to travel in or out of the country. Um, we're all back out. Outdoors is open. And everybody's just, nobody's social distancing. Some people still wear their masks, but it's not required. You know, we're back to, mm, back to normal life post, post-pandemic. Um, I just recall the, the, the predictions, how it was like, people kept, at first it was like, black people can't catch it. That was us talking to each other. And then it was, (laughs) and then it was, um, that we were more affected. Not that the treatment in hospitals were different and not looking at how how the medical system that already treats us differently in all categories and atrociously in many i give my own personal examples i'm a black woman i got plenty of examples um i remember going to i was i was in my 40s um and i remember going early 40s 42 years old as a matter of fact I remember being feeling nauseous and dizzy to the point where i couldn't even drive so i had my then um teenage son my oldest son drive me to the doctor and that was the first time I let him drive my car he was so happy (laughs) because um he got to drive his mom to the doctor and he was in the doctor's office with me I didn't even trust the doctor's office to leave him out sitting in the waiting room 
that's how much I don't trust these people. But, I, I, you know, you got to go to the doctor, right? Mm. So um, we are in the room and the doctor kept asking me, was I pregnant? And I was like, no, I'm celibate. So, no. My son was sitting there, mind you, and he kept, kept asking me, white male, kept asking me if I was pregnant. Sir, I told you I'm celibate. That's not what's going on here. So he did some tests or whatever, came back and told me, good news is you're not pregnant. Excuse me? He did a pregnancy test without my consent or my knowledge. And then it was very disrespectful because why you keep asking me, am I sure if I'm pregnant when I just told you I was celibate? I know my body. I don't, if you don't believe me, why you keep asking me? See, I'm getting mad right now. And that was a few years ago. So, no, I don't trust the mugs. Um, and also, in describing, you know, the last two people that passed away in my family, um, it happened in 2019. My aunt, Karen, uh, passed away from pancreatic cancer she had worked in the medical field her whole life and I was so shocked when she did not want to be she said I remember her words they're going to kill me get me out of this hospital she kept on Ooh, she looked me in my eyes and was like trying to get up out the bed but she was too weak to do so so um and my father mm, he lived a long life hey my daddy 74 December 2019 he passed away and my father hmm, if I said anything against white people he tried to tell me he liked he liked a good white church he would come in with his um, play the drums for the white church. He loved white people. His brother, this, and my brother, that. Yeah, but, nah. I guess he thought if he didn't talk about racism, it would be, it would, you know, would go away. Or was it was to talk about it or to complain about it would make it worse. I don't know what my father thought. But I know one thing. He told his wife, hospice is not coming in my house. If you bring hospice into my house, I'll rather run down the street and let and let my heart take me out than to have them sit up here and, and and do anything. So she didn't have hospice come in the house. And he passed away in his bed. And she described what happened. She said he had um heart complications, heart issues. And she said he was in the chair downstairs um, watching whatever he was watching. And I guess he knew he was going to pass away because she had um, stepped out to go to the store at the time. Um, But there was no way he could have walked up the stairs. And I guess there were things that were... I don't know how she came to the conclusion that he crawled up the stairs. But he he had to. Anyway, he was seated in his chair when she left. But when when she came back, He was upstairs, tucked nicely into his bed, and passed away in his bed where he said he was going to pass away. It's not funny, but my father strong-willed to the very last moment, to the very last breath. 
And I remember going to the hospital uh, the last time I saw him myself. Um, he was in a, a coma. And I remember going in, into the hospital. Uh, they lived in um, Columbia, South Carolina, Irmo. It was a very nice hospital, as hospitals go, I guess. And my father was strapped to the bed because he kept trying to... Even though he was in a coma, he was, like, moving. No, I, I was not prepared to see him do all of that. So my father was, like, moving, strapped to the bed, but he was, uh, oh, God. But I wasn't afraid of it. I never seen nothing like that. He was just moving. And it took a long time for them to let me come in and see him, but I wasn't going to go nowhere. I was, you know, I had taken a two-hour drive to see my father, so... Um, finally, they let me in, and he was pulling up, pulling up, and laying back down, making all of these noises and fighting, like, oh, he was doing a lot. And I came in there, and a friend of mine had driven me there and was um, with me, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, that I wasn't alone in that moment, physically alone, because I'm never alone, but I wasn't physically alone in that moment. And I said, Daddy, I'm here, it's Tracy. And he kept going, kept going, kept going. I put my hand on his shoulder. And every time he went up, we went up. Every time we went down, we went down together. We rode that together. Like, we used to ride waves when I was two years old. And he had me on his back riding the waves at the beach. Daddy, I'm here. I'm here. And he actually calmed down. After a while, it took, so, it took a while. It took a, a few minutes. But he actually calmed down. And um, I was able to be with him in that moment. So I knew he could hear me. And he left the house. He didn't pass away, obviously. Then he left. He came home. And he, um, we talked all the time after that on the phone. I didn't see him again. But we talked all the time on the phone. Three and four hours at a time until it was... He couldn't really talk that long because it took a lot for him. It took a lot of breath out of him to breathe. But we would um, communicate often. And, um, yeah, the medical profession. My father trusted them all the way up to, he was like, nah, I'm going to take control of my life and even the way I pass away from this life like black people have the right to determine their own health care so holistic health that's sometimes um, called like new age or whatever tapping into more natural things that are not chemically treated that are not taken from the ground chemically treated and then sold by pharmacy companies so that they can make a profit. If they if they added these chemicals, it's their product, they make the profit. But those chemicals they added add side effects. And the way everything 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 is broken down by race. And the way they study our bodies, black people are woo. Their chemicals I know they've studied the chemicals to intertwine with whatever is different inside of us that can be activated by certain chemicals. Because slow death is profitable for institutionalized white companies. 
And I'm not interested in signing up for that. So I don't know if I'm going to read this book for me, like I first stated I wanted to do, or as just a source of information from somebody who might not back up. You know what? This is what I'm going to do. This is the intro. And that's all I'm going to... If you want to read this book, it's out there. Medical Apartheid is out there at your local library. I even saw online a free PDF. I didn't look into how to get it, but the PDF is available. I forgot that site, and I'm not by my um, my computer right now. But um, I'll just read the intro and put it out there for you, my audience. That's all I got for you in this book. Yeah. Later.